Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. We're doing something new today at the After Talk. We have a guest with us, Vera Demchenko, a fellow presenter from the Fisk Planetarium and a student of astrophysics at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Recently, she completed an internship where she did research at the Green Bank Observatory. We're going to be talking to her today about the planet Mars. This was our episode about Elon Musk and the planet Mars and the potential for future colonization. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the Green Bank Observatory. Vera, what was it like working at the Green Bank Observatory? That's in West Virginia, right? Correct. So this observatory is really famous for a couple of reasons. Uh, There are a lot of really great things about the place. First of all, the people there, the scientists, uh, they're very relaxed. They're laid back. Uh, The pace of life there may be a little slow. Uh, You have to consider that the Green Bank Observatory is located in an area of the National Radio Quiet Zone. So no cell phone reception, no radio signals. You definitely cannot use any Wi-Fi. And uh, even toasters are prohibited. Toasters. (laughs) Yes, the toasters are not allowed. Uh, If you have a microwave that you want to use, they have some special ones located at the site, and they're basically enclosed by a Faraday cage. So that's basically what keeps out even the infrared radio uh, emissions from the microwave. Make sure that the signal is not interfering with the radio observations at all. So your staff lounge looks a lot different. At a, at a place like that than it would at your ter- typical company somewhere? Uh, you would think so, but not that much, I would say. Uh, it looks like a normal uh, facility. I mean, we do have a big room, which is an entirely uh, bigger version of a Faraday cage. It encloses the server room inside, and that is also where the control room is for the largest telescope that they have over there. It's actually... Uh, quite tall, a little taller than the Statue of Liberty. I've been on top of that thing, and someone as uh, who's a little afraid of height. It was terrifying being up there because you can see through the floor. It's like a metal mesh floor, mm. and but it's very impressive, and it can rotate in all kinds of directions. So, for someone that's never actually seen the building itself, how is, is it built? Just from ground level all the way up, or do they mine down into the ground and then build the telescope from the ground? Oh, the telescope itself is uh, standing on top of this giant structure, which uh, allows it to rotate the way that it does. So a lot of telescopes, they can only move from uh, west to east, uh, but this one can also move north to south. You can point it in these different directions. So the structure that supports its rotation underneath is actually the one that's dug deep into the Mm -hmm. ground and it's steel beams, uh, lots of oil on it, and some some birds are still unafraid of making nests there. (laughs) So I guess you could say it's a special telescope because it casts a very broad net over the universe and you can observe a much wider range of the night sky? Well, it's observing in radio. Okay. Yeah, I shouldn't say the night sky because it's not a conventional telescope. It's it's true. You can observe during the night, but you can also observe during the daytime, and that's what's so great about it. Uh, because of the na- National Radio Quiet Zone being so large, uh, basically you're located in the middle of a mountain valley, and you're not going to pick up a lot of the interfering signals that usually cities and Uh, urban places have so it's pretty convenient that's really cool do do you find that people are more present in their working relationships with other people not having cell phones to stare at all the time i would say definitely i've made uh, some pretty good relationships with some of the people there we have some really wonderful engineers and scientists and they all 
practically live around there. They have families and they often like to get together. Square dancing is also a popular thing to do around there. Uh, but yeah, a lot of the times you're going to find people getting together after the workday is over and just hanging out. It's really nice. That's awesome. So let's uh, get into a little bit about what specifically you were doing in research and data analysis there at uh, the Green Bank Observatory? So I was a bit of an oddball intern there because I was the only one with a planetary science focus. Everyone else there, I'm sure it's not that far of a stretch to make, you know, was doing radio astronomy research. They were using telescopes uh, at the site to observe whatever uh, celestial body structure that they wanted to. And uh, so I was doing uh, a project with my mentor. Uh, her name is Hannah Sizemore. And she uh, has been working on developing this climate model and film model with Aaron Zent, uh, both of which are amazing people. Uh, but basically it's a giant computer program that was built in MATLAB. And I won't get much into this, but MATLAB can be horrendous to work with sometimes. Lots of bugs to work on. but. Essentially what they do is they take some of the data from the orbiters around Mars and also there was a lander back in 2008 called Phoenix and it was studying uh, the geographical location, the upper latitude of Mars, which hasn't really happened since that lander mission. You know, where we currently have Curiosity and Insight, they're located more or less at the equator. It's very dry there. You don't have a lot of ice that you're going to find, but the, the more north or south you go, the more ice you're going to find, especially one that is shallowly buried. Uh, so there's a little uh, thin layer of soil covering it. It's very easy to dig up. So they take this data and what they do is they analyze it and uh, use basically prediction models to help understand how that ice underneath the soil grows and wanes over time. Now I took this model and basically developed my own script off of it to measure the water activity of this ice. Because at some point, especially throughout Martian history, you have uh, some periods which are considered warmer than others. And you're going to have some of that ice melt and form very thin liquid veins. Now within those liquid, vein, uh, liquid veins, you could basically understanding you know, how big are these little habitats. They're very transient in nature. So is there any kind of life form on Earth that we already know of that could possibly survive those conditions? So this was some of the questions that I was investigating during the summer. Are these veins uh, under, underground for the most part? Yes. Okay. But we do believe, we addressed this in the episode as well, but we do believe that liquid water was definitely flowing on the surface of Mars uh, in, the, in the ancient past. Definitely should never be used to make that uh, statement because, uh, yes, uh, it's, it's definitely, I would say, uh, the case that there were rivers floating on the surface. But uh, definitely don't confuse uh, rivers with oceans because it was believed that the Mars had some really large seas, maybe had this large ocean, uh, that was basically encompassing half of the planet. Hmm. But that's actually still a theory. So, Does that, does that come from there being a comet contact? And so you have, comet, is that what you said? Like a comet making contact with what would have been quote-unquote Mars back in the ancient, ancient past. And ah, all that so ice creating some body of water from that collision. Uh, well, actually, um, that's a good guess. Mm -hmm. uh, comets are now, at least for the case of Earth, are believed to be not the source of water. It's mm -hmm. asteroids. Oh, you have asteroids. to understand that the asteroid belt is also really icy past the frost line point. So, uh, um, we... Just to interrupt you, um, some of our listeners may not know what the frost line is. So, picture the sun. And we are going radially out from it. And uh, early on in the solar system, at this particular point out from the star, uh, like our sun, this is the uh, temperature at which any water on the surface of a moon 
or a planet would be able to be in uh, essentially frost form. This is the point where it condenses into a solid. So this is where you'll find a lot of icy objects. Uh, anything past the frost line will have uh, significantly more ice than the objects uh, inside of the frost line, such as uh, basically Mars, Earth, Venus, and Mercury. So is this, that's like a Goldilocks zone of where it's just far enough away from the sun where the sun isn't actually... Or, or any star, for that it, matter. It's like a Goldilocks zone, but I would say that... Merc the planet Mercury, for instance, is not in the quote-unquote Goldilocks zone, but it is, you know, in contrast to the to the frost line. Well, I, I use Goldilocks to kind of use it as a connotation of that it's far enough away from the sun that the the water itself is not going to be of liquid. It's going to only be found in a solid state, right? Because it's cold enough out there that it's not. That's not possible. So the Goldilocks zone, otherwise known to astronomers as the um, as the, the, the habitable zone. Uh, yeah, so this is actually a very different term from the frost line. Uh, it works in a similar way, you're right. Uh, but the, the point where the frost line is, it, it's not necessarily reflecting the habitability uh, of places okay. either. Um, so it, they're a little bit of different terms to use and not to be confused with each other, okay. but they are similar. So, what do they believe the origin of the water on Mars to be? Asteroids is what you said? Asteroids, uh, for, for Earth at least. For Earth, okay. We have not taken uh, the ice samples of Mars and actually analyzed their deuterium to hydrogen ratio, uh, to my knowledge, yet. But this is what they did for Earth, and they compared it to... Yeah, you know, the ratio, um, the same ratio found in asteroids and comets, uh, trans-Newtonian uh, objects as well. And what they found is that the ratio is the same for water ice uh, or on these asteroids compared to the water on Earth. Hmm. And that is what makes us think that it's not actually comets that brought this water to our planet. It's, it's asteroids. Hmm. There's also the theory of panspermia that life itself ended up on earth uh, brought here perhaps by comets or asteroids well you can have some some life forms potentially hanging out on an asteroid or a comet uh, though a comet might be a little difficult to fathom uh, because of the way that its orbit is just uh, uh, working but, uh, yeah, you, you could definitely have some kind of life form that came to Earth from a distant object, as opposed to it being developed here on Earth itself, which is, uh, I believe, known as uh, biogenesis. Right. Biogenesis. Yeah. Right. The, and abiogenesis would be when, when matter goes from being inorganic to becoming like some, some living creature, some living organism. Yeah. So, before we pivot back to talking about Mars, I can't resist asking you about this strange interstellar asteroid, uh, just as, as a sidebar, um, Oumuamua. Yes, uh, otherwise known as 1I, we had to come up with an entirely new classification system for it because it was our first interstellar object to come visit in the solar system. Do you think uh, the theory that it's an alien spaceship do you agree with most astronomers who say that that's a very far-fetched uh idea you know there was a harvard paper that came out recently doing the math of basically imagining this object to be some kind of um solar sail or, right. or something you know someone had to do the math uh and try to prove whether it could be possible or not um the answer I believe that they concluded is that it's still possible. However, uh, I'm a bit skeptical about that. And I personally much more prefer to believe that this was just an asteroid that got uh, somehow gravitationally uh, you know, pulled into our, our solar system from some kind of flung out by some distant object. It, it's very uh, flat, right? So it could be maybe a shard of material. Yeah, it has a weird shape based on what we've discovered about its period. So its uh, rotation period, you know, how, how long does it take 
uh, to rotate about uh, about its axis. It's only three to five hours long, so it's very short. Uh, at that uh, kind of period, normally you have objects disintegrating and uh, bro breaking apart. Um, that's just what happens if you're spinning that fast. However, the fact that it hasn't come apart tells us that it's a very dense object and it might have iron for sure in there, some really heavy materials. It's not just some kind of a rubble pile. It was definitely some really dense piece of rock. And uh, that's partially also why we think the shape is kind of elongated because if you're rotating that fast, you'll have matter kind of getting pushed out at the equatorial region of the object. So uh, we think it could look like a cigar. Maybe you want to think of it as like a potato chip. So it's rotating like a football, though, when you say it's rotating it. Like it's rotating quickly in a spinning motion, and that's causing everything to push out, essentially, is the theory. Yeah, there's a lot more uh, complicated mechanisms taking place with this object. And unfortunately, I, I don't know in depth about that. Uh, kind of research, but uh, what I can tell you is, uh, yeah, that's a good general uh, simplification. I mean, it's not like spinning like a helicopter propeller. It's going... It's probably spinning at some kind of angles, and a uh, fun thing I, I've learned recently is that sunlight can actually affect the rotation uh, and path of asteroids. Is that, it's like a, like a solar sail, so kind of work and that cause it to or is it just temperature yeah um so that is a good question and um basically it comes down to yarkovsky and yorp effects uh, basically it alters you know how fast or how chaotically something is spinning and that precession can in turn be uh exchanged for different kind of energy so like let's say has uh, it gains more kinetic energy in the process mm. um so so it moves in a different way gotcha. it, it doesn't move at the same rate that it was previously interesting interesting um you mentioned orbitals on mars are you referring to like what we would know as satellites that are sent over there to observe it or uh just like pieces of rock that are or comets or asteroids that are revolving around them i don't actually recall talking about orbitals you said that we have or there are orbitals on that are around mars I could oh not orbitals orbiters orbiters excuse me yes so basically you know like a satellite that we've artificially put in an orbit around mars to how track. many of those do we have observing mars right you know now? i can't come up with that number off the top of my head right now but we have quite a bit and uh, there are also a lot of missions that have failed putting an orbiter around Mars. Uh, a lot of them have crashed too. And landing on, you know, landing on Mars is even more difficult than putting an orbiter uh, around Mars. And we'll talk a little bit about the potential for human missions and colonization in just a second. But I wanted to say, just on the subject of life on Mars, how do you feel about that? Having having done this research, do you think we're a little bit closer to finding out if there is or was life on Mars? You know, um, at the conclusion of my research project, I more or less have been a little disappointed with the results that I got. Disappointed in the sense that I was a very much an optimist as to thinking, you know, you could have some life form on Mars. And it's not saying that I have completely abandoned that idea, but at the same time, I have grown extremely skeptical, especially now that I have data to back that up. A colleague of ours at the Fisk Planetarium, her name was Taylor. Uh, she's no longer there, but she told me something very interesting once that she said, oh, there's probably never was any life on Mars, and there's certainly not any there now. And she explained that in her view, at least, the liquid water that was likely once on the surface of Mars wasn't uh, liquid water on the surface of Mars for very long. And if if life was there in the past, it, you would probably need liquid water on the surface for extensive periods of time for it, for it to develop. Yeah, so it's actually funny to think uh, how long Mars actually remained habitable. Uh, the answer to that is really at the very start of its formation for only, I want to say... Um, mm, like 
0.5 billion years uh, or something at most. So 0.5 billion years, that's 500 million years? Uh, yeah. 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 So that is a stark contrast to the Earth where life has been around for, what would we say, 3 billion years? 4.5, I believe. 4.5. So that's, and how old would you say the Earth is? Well, that's that's what I mean. 4.5 billion so, years old. So what, well, how long has life been around on the Earth, do we think? For... Oh, uh, well, they think that life has been around for a pretty long time. At least 3 billion years, right? Something like that, yes. Yeah, so really shortly after the Earth formed, life arose somewhere, somehow. Right, shortly as in regards to the, the geological timescales. Right. For humans, obviously, too long. Right, in the in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, our, our friend, uh, mutual friend Taylor, she just said we're, we're kind of wasting our time and that we have this fantasy of life on Mars and we're obsessed with Mars and we're spending so much money exploring the surface of Mars. But in reality, uh, it might be a, a wild goose chase. It might be a wild goose chase, uh, but at the same time, we haven't been to the surface ourselves. We don't fully understand the interior of Mars either. Who knows, perhaps at the very center it actually is still uh, active and uh, inside Lander is actually uh, trying to figure out whether it has earthquakes or I guess in, in the Mars case, Marsquakes. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that could definitely indicate to us whether the interior is still geologically active and that's going to be really important because you could perhaps have... Um, some caves uh, really deep in the interior, uh, closer to this warmer zone of Mars, and maybe some life has actually migrated downwards. But that's just a wild idea I'm throwing out. I'm not saying it's true, but we just don't know. And yeah. we haven't explored it enough to know that. We were very surprised to find uh, deep deep down in the ocean, where there is no sunlight whatsoever, we have these, these geologically active areas and these thermal vents where you have... Uh, what would you call them? Tube worms? I would call them uh, more or less bacteria. Uh, a lot of these organisms rely on chemosynthesis to make energy and food for themselves, so they don't use the power of the sunlight. What are the worm-like, snake-like things that we show to guests at the Fisk Planetarium? You know, there, there are photographs that people show a lot. I think they're called tube worms, but we might have to check on that. Now, are they actual worms that we're talking about? No, they're not like earthworms. They're just these funny little uh, creatures that live near uh, deep sea vents. They're they're larger than microscopic, like bacteria and things like that. But there there is mic microscopic bacteria down there. Uh, as well. But they're found here on Earth, not yes, on Mars. Yes, yes, Correct. We That's have not found any life besides Earth so okay. far. Um, is it shown that there's tectonic activity on Mars? Like Mars is no longer tectonically active in terms of plate tectonics. Uh, and we see that on the surface today. It's just not a process that's happening anymore. It's outer crust, and uh, some layers below that are considered to be solid already. Okay. So I want to um, pivot to something that is was a big subject in our recent Mars episode, and that is the idea of human missions and human colonization of the surface of Mars. It's, as we said before, very difficult to do, and you actually told me that you're a little bit skeptical about what the future holds in that regard. That is correct. And I would just like to say, if you think that you are going to colonize Mars in the next 50 years, good luck with that. Um, it's very possible for us to get to Mars by then, but to make some extensive progress on colonizing uh, Mars, it, no, I, I'm very skeptical about that process. So you think in, in the next 50 years, in the next half century, human beings will probably... Definitely, maybe, land on Mars. Yes. So you would look at it almost like getting to the top of Mount Everest is a possible thing for humans to do. But living on a tent at the summit of Everest is not necessarily something long-term that would be... Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, at the top of Mount Everest, you already need some oxygen tanks, otherwise you're going to pass out. Yeah. And in fact, that's what a lot of uh, climbers do when they get up to the top of that summit. So if you were to live in a tent 
up there, you know, you have to have some oxygen supply with you at all times. Otherwise, you're going to die. Even uh, Antarctica, where the air is breathable, is an environment on Earth that is so extreme that no one really lives in Antarctica and has a family in Antarctica. There aren't any indigenous Antarcticans that are just living there. Scientists have stints that they do where they will winter over or stay there for maybe as much as a year and then go home. So Correct. It's a very harsh environment. So continuous human habitation of Antarctica is something that we we're still really haven't managed to uh, make a reality because Antarctica is too remote. So that gives you an idea about how much more remote Mars would be to, to colonize. Correct. It's the reason why I brought up Everest is I heard the comparison that like living on the top of Everest would be like Hawaii compared to and like livability in comparison to all of the problems that you'd be having on the surface of Mars, just with all the logistics of getting all of the oxygen and water and being able to find it habitable. Yeah, that's that's not a bad comparison to make. So uh, we talk about Elon Musk in this episode and i kind of share your opinion a little bit that he's as he's very eccentric and maybe a little bit too ambitious uh, for his own good for all the success that he's had what what do you think about elon musk i think that he's a brilliant guy he's very smart and you're right he's very ambitious uh but i also think that sometimes his ambition is a little too strong he's taking on some challenges that certainly need to be taken on by at least one of us in order to push forward and make progress in our technology and space flight but i i don't think he can do all these things alone he definitely Mm -hmm. needs a lot of help along the way to make this happen and when he promises certain things to the public uh you know I'm just, I'm a little skeptical that he can make them realistically possible, at least in the time frame that he usually describes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you know this, uh, but he's had so many delays. He would always push back these projects. I mean, uh, Tesla Motors, th- these cars that he's developed, they were supposed to be uh, available on the market, I, I want to say a couple of years before they actually did come mm-hmm. out. So that just gives you an idea. But uh, I don't know how well it is known. For me, at least, it wasn't until recently. But one of the reasons why SpaceX was able to survive its early stages of company development is because of a big NASA grant that was offered to them. And it was offered to, uh, I think, at least one other company uh, in the aerospace industry as well. The number keeps increasing in terms of the uh, the amount of companies that get this grant, but the grants are obviously a little varying by size of the uh, the sum that they receive. Uh, SpaceX is one of the oldest companies that's gotten this NASA support, and honestly, without it, I, I really don't think that they would be here right now. I'm sure it was probably built into the business model, you know, like create a viable craft that can be reusable and then try to seek NASA grants to make it happen, you know, because there, there is no, you have to work with, within the, the national government that wherever you're, you are in order to get money for that, because oh. there, there aren't private interests other than going up as a tourist up to space. You, you know, know, I, I'm not a, someone that works with SpaceX, but I, I would honestly, wouldn't necessarily say that NASA grants were built into the business model. I think he was largely trying to use Tesla Motors to help support his investment in oh, SpaceX. Definitely, definitely. And, and, you know, it, it's definitely going to take a lot more than just uh, Tesla Motors to fund the scale of a project. In fact, it's going to take even more money than he currently has. I, I think the future of human space travel will be built on public and private partnerships that in some cases are 50-50 and in some cases might be uh, 70-30, you know, might be completely unequal and uh, not really balanced in, in that regard. NASA, I would say NASA is still a very impressive organization when it comes to traveling outside of low Earth orbit and everything that the private sector has been doing in space, you know, we've kind of, the United States government has given over a lot of uh, travel in Earth orbit to Russia as well as the private sector. And, but NASA truly knows the, the challenges of leaving 
the orbit of the Earth and going and visiting other places from uh, the moon to uh, the rest of our interplanetary neighborhood. They also know very well that it's going to take a significant amount of innovation to create better rockets to take us to further mm-hmm. places like Mars. I mean, can we do it right now? Yeah, it's going to take forever. It's also going to take a lot of money uh, because uh, the uh, rocket, like Delta IV, you know, it, it's powerful, but uh, it would have to be uh, probably better used for the moon rather than Mars at the current stage where it's at. So why do you say that it would be better for uh, the moon rather than Mars? Uh, just in terms of its technological capabilities. Okay. It's, power- it's not powerful enough to take us to Mars at the amount of time we want to get to Mars. You know, uh, with some orbital uh, configurations that are most favorable for fuel efficiency, you know, it would take, like, I wouldn't say six uh, months uh, to get there, maybe three. I'm not remembering the, the number of the yes, time I have six, right now. Six to nine months is the figure that I often hear quoted. And travel time is, is a big deal because uh, you're going to have astronauts landing on the surface that have been weightless for a really long time. And with, you know, the loss of muscle mass and, and things like that, not to mention being exposed to cosmic rays and radiation and things like that before before landing on the surface of Mars. And then you're going to have to get out and do a lot of physically exhausting uh, activities. You know, there's another factor that I forgot to mention that makes it really hard to get to Mars. You know, it's not just the fact that our rockets aren't just like powerful enough though it can be done it's also the fact that by the time you actually get to mars how are you going to land we don't really have the technology right now in place to land humans on mars right and you i would hope uh, to talk more to you on on that subject of just how difficult it is to land human beings on mars and how difficult a mission to mars is going to be i think they call it the seven minutes of terror. We talk about that in the episode is the, the process of entering the, the atmosphere of Mars and descending to the surface and, and landing safely. That's a, a tremendous concern. And for some of our listeners who may be a little bit confused by this, we have landed a lot of robots on Mars, but we're going to need to land something very large if we're going to take a human crew to Mars. And that's a, a large space vehicle, the likes of which uh, we've never uh, tried landing on Mars. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different issue for Mars landing uh, versus Earth landing for the same kind of uh, purpose. Because the gravity of Mars is significantly smaller. And on top of that, it has an atmosphere that is very thin, but significant enough to cause turbulence and drag effects that we have to consider. So it's going to be really hard to land on a planet like that. And we've come up with a bit of a solution for some of the bigger landers, like Curiosity. Uh, We used this technology called Skycrane to basically lower the lander onto the surface with this Skycrane machine just hovering almost like a helicopter above the surface. You're not really going to be able to do that with human beings. It would have to be either a really big machine, which at that point, you know, is it really worth the cost? Or uh, we would just have to think of something else, maybe more like a shuttle kind of design to land us on the surface. And, you know, Moon is, on the other hand, significantly easier to land on because it doesn't have any atmosphere. Sure, the uh, gravity is lower, but you basically just have to almost like break your way down. Yeah, uh, I've heard it described that landing on the moon is is very much like driving a car down a very steep hill and just kind of pumping the brakes as yeah. you go slowly go down the hill. Yeah, that's that's basically exactly what it is. And in our episode, uh, our series on the space race, we talked about how Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin came very close to crashing into the surface of the moon. So landing on the moon is not easy by any stretch, and I'm actually very concerned at the prospect of astronauts making the journey to Mars and crashing and potentially dying on the surface of Mars and and then having a space program where everybody is very demoralized and saying it's probably not worth the cost of trying it again to land human beings on Mars. And that could be very, very dangerous to the program. The Apollo 1 disaster in the Apollo program trying to get astronauts to the moon, that 
almost threatened to shut down the Apollo program, and thankfully it didn't. Thankfully we had the national will to proceed. Yes, but one of the reasons we had a national will to proceed, as you just said, is mostly because of a big motivation, a political motivation, to beat the Soviet Union in the space race. And we clearly don't really have this kind of same motivation drive right now. You know, Russia's space program, it's not uh, anything close to, to NASA right now. It's interesting because you and I talked in our last after talk about, you know, we, we want to keep this an apolitical podcast, but a lot of it, you know, thankfully there was some sort of political motivation that led that whole endeavor forth. Absolutely, and, and, and space and politics are intertwined because of the huge role that governments uh, play in it and because of the enormous costs. You have to be able to justify uh, politically spending that that amount of taxpayer dollars. And so I think you're you're absolutely right, the politics of it are a kind of an issue. You, you said that, um, if I heard you right, that NASA is better in a lot of ways than the Russian space in, in agency? Oh, for sure. I mean, for one, we are, uh, well, I shouldn't say we, but NASA has been developing uh, some newer technologies like SLS, um, whereas Russia is just, it hasn't really been innovational in a while. It has been using the same old janky uh, equipment to get the astronauts to the ISS, like the Soyuz capsule. You know, whereas uh, someone like Elon Musk is developing the Dragon V2 capsule, which has a lot more spacious uh, kind of atmosphere. You can fit a lot more astronauts in there, too. And, you know, we need we need more innovation in, in the space industry. And I don't I just don't see Russia making a lot of an effort at that. And, of course, it doesn't have... A, strong kind of incentive um, like U.S. does. It doesn't have a civil agency devoted strictly to the de uh, development of space technology. So, yeah, also there's just not as much political support for that kind of thing back there. I'm really excited by the idea of a space race to Mars that would, would reinvigorate people if uh, maybe if we're competing with China or if we were competing with Russia, uh, maybe the national will in our country for a manned mission to Mars might increase. But I think the reality is that whether it's through public and private partnerships or through international collaborations, that's going to be how we uh, split the enormous cost of going to Mars. Unfortunately, uh, for example, you know that the ISS was an international collaboration for the most part. When you look at the numbers, it just doesn't seem to add up in regards to, you know, it's just not being split fairly, the cost. the Most of the burden of uh, such projects is taken on by U.S. And Russia definitely contributes uh, perhaps the next biggest amount, but it's still like a fraction of what U.S. is contributing. So I want to say, yeah, that's a great idea. We're definitely going to need international collaborators in the next uh, missions, especially if there are manned missions to celestial places in our solar system. It's just not going to work out unless these countries are going to bear more of a, you know, a financial burden as well. Absolutely. I think that's a great point. Do you think uh, it's worth it, the enormous cost of sending human beings to the red planet? You know, I feel like we could learn a lot from a place like Mars, for sure. Uh, I can't give you maybe the kind of answer you want. It's kind of vague. But the, the thing about science research is that you just don't know what you're going to discover. You don't know what you're going to find until you, you do. So you have to kind of put an investment in that kind of technological scientific advancement that could potentially help our way of life, maybe having more sustainable energy and resources, but we just don't know yet. I think uh, there was a quote that we mentioned from Freeman Dyson in our last podcast where he said, there are more things in heaven and earth that are dreamt of in human philosophy, and we shall only know what they are if we go out and search for them. Correct. And so I guess to wrap that up, I want to say, yeah, it's definitely worth going to Mars. And uh, I don't know if we're going to get in on this uh, topic, but I think that going to the moon is going to be a very useful uh, strategy first before we get to this planet. 
did uh, you meet you met Dr. Fran Bagnall, right? Yes. So she helped to design the, I guess, the mission profile for the Juno space probe yep. orbiting Jupiter right now. And I was fascinated by the fact that she was a, a very brilliant and very opinionated woman. And she said that she thought the idea of manned space exploration, for as fascinated as she was with space exploration, the idea of sending human beings, she thought, was a stupid waste of time and money. That is probably exactly the way she phrased it, too, um, because <laughs> I've had her in a couple of uh, class lectures as a guest speaker myself, and yes, yeah, she has a very strong distaste for human exploration, and I understand the concern of money, but I think that the plan, at least that the current administration is proposing, it's reasonable. You have to kind of make that transition over from landers and robotic explorations to manned missions while we are developing the technology needed for humans so we can continue sending robots to these places, exploring them and getting us the data we need. You know, are we going to have to have the special heat shield for the, the depth of the atmosphere on this place? You know, these kind of factors, they matter. And, and this robot can help us get these answers and definitely save some some time some money but i also think that some uh exploration just cannot be done by robots alone it needs a pair of human eyes to really get the perspective that we're looking for absolutely well um i guess the the final question i would close on you you addressed a lot of it is just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the importance of space exploration in general. I, I would think it would be uh, a lot of people, I think, don't see the value in it, but it would probably go back to what you just said about how we don't know what there is out there to be found. Uh, again, to pull from my book of quotes here, uh, Carl Sagan had a, a something he said famously, uh, somewhere something important is waiting to be known. Yeah, Um you know, I, I could use this maybe more of a controversial example. Uh, one of the things that we have currently learned from space exploration is our, about our global climate change. You know, where we understand now what happens when you have a greenhouse effect and what happens when you have a runaway greenhouse effect. We've really learned a lot about that through Venus because that's exactly what's happening there. So studying some of these places beyond Earth can help us understand our own home, our own place in the universe. And you know, yeah, who knows? Maybe we could find someone out there. Maybe we could find something great. We are definitely looking into markets like asteroid mining for more resources because Earth is not going to have these resources forever. And maybe on, you know, the timescale of you and I, we're not going to live to see that kind of day of where we've run out of resources. But at the same time, that is a threat we have to consider long term. And we have to start working on this kind of issue now. We can't just wait. We can't just magically have all of the answers that we need, like, you know, deep space exploration uh, to get such resources by the time that we really do need it. Mm. I should point out that uh, Vera is a has a minor in philosophy that Correct. you're you're about to finish, and so we could wax philosophical about a lot of the reasons for space exploration and why mankind is driven to explore. But at at the end of the day, I think there are, as you pointed out, some huge economic benefits, uh, or at least potential for economic benefits in the future. Uh, in terms of natural resources. And also uh, something we mentioned in the podcast is Jim Lovell wrote a wonderful article about how for every dollar we spent on the space race in the 1960s, $7 were then returned to the United States economy. And so I think for people who are cold and calculating and don't like those emotional, inspirational, philosophical arguments about space travel, there are some economic arguments that uh, space travel is something that human beings have to pursue. And that's partially the reason why I use that um, kind of economic gain as an example of why space is important. Because you're right, not everyone cares about space as much as we do. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's almost like biologically programmable into our core. You know, we want to learn what's out there. And, you know, 
we saw Mount Everest and we wanted to climb it and well space is there. So that would be the next place to climb. Yeah, that was that was the way John F. Kennedy put it. And so yeah, and, and to be clear, I love the inspirational, emotional and philosophical arguments. I think those are great and I think those are arguments that need to be made. But I think what it comes down to is human beings we're all so unique and we're all so different that some of the arguments that will persuade some people might not be persuasive to other people and it's just, as far as I'm concerned, there's a long list of reasons that we have to explore space. And I think we just need to keep pushing those arguments forward. Correct. I think you're right about that. Do you have anything else to add, uh, Mr. Producer? Um, I would just say that, you know, we kind of bash on Elon, but I mean, with everything that we just talked about, he's kind of the, the, the forebearer of someone who just doesn't, maybe there's a lot of it might end up costing him a lot more debt and he's not doing quite as much good as, as we would hope he's doing, but at least he's kind of kind of trailblazing the path of what something like this might look like. You know? And that's partially the reason why I admire him so much because the world, the space industry needs people like Elon. Yeah. We need those kind of crazy people because they're kind of the ones that push us, motivate us to to do something we haven't done before and accomplish something we have been afraid to do for a while. So yeah, we, we definitely could use more people like Elon. If Elon Musk gets us halfway to some of the goals that he's talked about, then maybe someone else can take up that mantle uh, within, when a new generation comes about and take us all the way there. I, you know, personally, this is probably wishful thinking, but I'm, I'm hoping to see human beings one day explore the outer solar system uh, and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and, and stuff like that as well. Yeah, that would be amazing. I mean, one of my favorite moons is Titan. I would definitely love to see more exploration happen there. Why is Titan one of your favorite moons? It's so exotic compared to Earth, but at the same time, not as much as we think. It kind of looks like early Earth, except super cold. You know, it's layered with a lot of organic materials on the surface. All the building blocks for life are virtually there. Except, instead of liquid water, you have liquid methane. And uh, basically, uh, Titan, as much as it is basically like a giant ball of fart juice, it's also, <laughs> uh, you know, so through some chemistry, you could potentially have life formed there already if it doesn't exist now. Yeah, the uh, liquid methane you refer to, I believe it. Uh, Titan is the only place in the solar system that has rivers, lakes, and oceans that are that are liquid, uh, just the way the planet Earth does. So yeah. that's that's one of many reasons that it's very Earth-like. And I think there's a good argument to be made that Titan has more potential for life on it than Mars does. I think so, especially uh, because some of the models we currently have of its interior lead us to believe that it probably has some inner shell that's basically full of liquid water, but it's just trapped underneath the ground. It's just not interacting with the outer surface at all. But, you know, in five billion years from now, when our sun is going to turn into a red giant, you know, it's going to swell up in size and it's going to be significantly closer to Titan. Perhaps that will be the just the right amount of energy this moon will need in order to kickstart life. Because maybe that water underneath could actually be released up to the surface and exist in a stable state. It already has the atmosphere enough to supply the pressure. It's a... Uh fantastic idea for a science fiction story i think it is we need to make sure that we send out at least a lander out there with just a faceplate that says we named you titan <laughs> so remember that your name is titan when when life comes alive on the planet you know we have to also be careful because the surface of titan is like negative 290 degrees fahrenheit and we need to make sure whatever we send out there and put it in there it's just not going to disintegrate and just break apart you know titan is actually this is another cool fact about titan which i'm sure vera is aware of but it's the site of the only landing that we've ever done in in a world in the outer solar system yeah correct the huygens probe landed there uh, back when cassini was still around so we have um 
we have landed one thing on Titan that we know of. Hopefully there'll be uh, more future missions. Yeah, they also didn't last very long. <laughs> you, um, you were there when they had some big farewell to uh, Cassini yeah, uh, par- party where the, where the Cassini probe plunged. It was plunged in deliberately into the atmosphere of Saturn, right? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we don't want to contaminate anything and... Uh, the Con- way contaminated Saturn, with our, our germs from Earth. Our germs, yes, from Earth with uh, other objects in the solar system. So if you uh, flung it into a big planet like Saturn, that's probably one of the most efficient ways of getting rid of our mess. What was the atmosphere like uh, that day? Was it a sort of bittersweet moment? It was very much a bittersweet moment, but I got some really cool stickers out of that. And also a lot of coffee because it was 6 a.m. when it happened. Hmm. Well, our uh, thumbnail image for this episode will be a picture of uh, Vera's laptop. And you get to see, if you look at the uh, thumbnail image for this episode, it will be some of those uh, wonderful, wonderful stickers. I just want to throw this in in here because I had to confirm first. But if you have a Netflix subscription, uh, there's a series called Seven Days Out that does a bunch of crazy things that are like seven days leading up to a big event. And there's one episode on there on the Cassini mission that's pretty cool about the thing that Vera's talking about where they were watching the radio communication as it was coming to the final minutes and seconds where they were going to lose contact with it. It's very cool. Very emotional. Yeah. Well, do you have uh, anything else to add before we conclude? Mars is cool. Mars is very cool. And very cold. Yes. (laughs) Well, uh, thank you so much for being on our our program today, Uh, Vera. It's been a pleasure. Sure. No problem. I enjoyed it. 